So this is very exciting for me for a number of different reasons. Welcome to South Beach Sessions. Most special of these, I think, that we have done in all the time we've been doing them. I'm Dan Levitard, and my guest today is a partner, and this is a bit of a love story here because this is a man who has been a bit of a mentor to me, a man who has cared about the same things I've cared about, a man who comes from privilege, not at the earliest roots, but at the top of ESPN as the most powerful executive in sports, and he decided on his own to hand down some of that privilege to some minorities that he empowered, and then I in turn did at ESPN his work spiritually. He was an executive at Rolling Stone at the time when magazines were flourishing and when Rolling Stone embodied a certain spirit in America. He's a literary man, an educated man, and for a really long time, he was the most powerful executive across sports. He's also my friend and someone I love because he has given me a great deal, given my family a great deal of opportunity, of belief, because ESPN was under-indexing with Hispanics and they needed somebody Hispanic on the air. And so we created a television show in which I was not Hispanic enough. So we brought in my father as a cartoon character and he was extra Hispanic. And Skipper would sit on the end of his bed and watch that show as original programming that he had made for the network because he was trying to do things like playmakers and push the boundaries. So I want to talk to John Skipper, my friend, my mentor, a guy I now go into business with and I entrust with this beast of a thing that you guys have built and trust him implicitly because he's a man who I admire, I respect, I love, and he has done a great deal for me and my family. And so I'm happy at this last stage in his professional career and one of the last stages in mine that we would get to team up again and make content like you helped me make at ESPN. For the audience that does not know, everything that we have in Miami that was taken nationally, was done so by this man. He built this studio. He made it close to my house. I told him for many years that I didn't want to work for ESPN for many years. How can you make something more Miami than what I got? I got an afternoon drive show in Miami. I'm the lead columnist. I'm on PTI, your big show in Miami. Make something more Miami. You can't make something more Miami. Okay, LeBron's getting there. Let's build a studio in Miami. Your dad will do the show with you. Your brother will do the art, and you will hire your whole family. That'll make you more, and we'll put it on Ocean Drive. How's that, Dan? You're a defiant rebel. How's that? Why don't, you, why don't you turn that one down? You don't want to work for the big corporation? You don't want to work for Disney? Why don't you turn down that shit? And so he builds a studio at the Clevelander, and then everything after that gets built on his, his rebellion because he was in the corporate machine as a Disney executive, but he's really from Rolling Stone. So anyway, all of that is to say... In the spirit of this business that we're building, John Skipper is here to tell you a little bit about it, and I just want to get into your story because you not only were the most powerful man or executive in sports for a while, your story is pretty interesting from before that. So where would you like to get started on our journey? I don't even know. You and I have never talked about this. I don't know why you originally hired me. I don't know why you decided to do a television show with me. I don't know why you chased us across years and I was like, not unless it's in Miami. I will not do it in Los Angeles. I will not do it in New York. It's got to be Miami. And my agent would tell me, Dan, it's never going to be in Miami. But you and my agent had some sort of relationship and you two built this. The story of my trying to hire you started with the beginning of ESPN the magazine, which uh, we launched in March of 1998. We moved into 
an office that looked not unlike this back in May of 1997 to prepare for that. And I'd made the decision that we were going to create a diverse workforce for the magazine. Why? Like, why was that important to you? For a couple of reasons. First, for business. We were taking on the great Sports Illustrated, right? Sports Illustrated had been the only sports magazine that had really mattered for a whole, whole bunch of years. That's with apologies to your and my friend John Walsh, who produced a great sports magazine called Inside Sports. And later Sports Center, created Sports Center after that. But when I make the statement that Sports Illustrated is the only magazine that mattered, I say that with all due respect for John, who created a great magazine, but there was not a great business plan behind it, so it didn't work. We were going to create a great magazine with a great business plan, and I looked at Sports Illustrated and believed that it was not in touch with the times, that they were a news magazine. Older and white as well. You always seem to notice that. I never understood why and how. Like there, I remember interviewing with Sports Illustrated, turning down a job with a guy from Sports Illustrated because he was literally wearing a sweater around his shoulders. And I'm like, I can't work for, for that. He also told me, and this was a real country club magazine they had, he also told me a story I had already done about Drew Rosenhaus that they did after me and less well. He sort of taunted me with, and no one saw yours because ours was the cover. Well, that's Sports because Sports Illustrated was a weekly gathering of sports fans who got the magazine, read about things that had happened the weekend before. I thought that was a little out of date with Sports Center on the air uh, every day and highlights. I didn't think you needed a news magazine. And then you looked at what the country was becoming and who sports fans were, and they run the gamut. And lots and lots of sports fans weren't particularly served by what was a overwhelmingly white and male staff at Sports You noticed somewhere back then minorities were being underserved. Why did you care to notice it? Well, what I was- said there were two reasons. The first was business. The second was I'm a North Carolinian, and I grew up in the segregated South. I think you did in the lovely intro, which I just appreciate very much. And I reiterate all the affection and uh, the history, but I did believe that you refer to this as my close to something like my last hurrah. It's right. And that's because I'm old enough for this to be my last hurrah. Maybe not, but one of the last, but I am old enough that I was, went to segregated schools in Lexington, North Carolina. And so it was really easy to look around and see, gee, there's nobody here but white people. And uh, the schools were finally segregated, I mean integrated, when I was 12 or 13 years old. And you could look around and see, well, gee, about 35 or 40 percent of the people sitting in the chairs in the class now are black. So you got to be very astute at noticing, okay, who's in the room? So I grew up in rooms where there are only white people. So now I was in a room that was integrated. And I thought it's better. Uh, it's more interesting. Uh, people with different points of view and different life experiences. It's more fun. So you hire me as a Hispanic writer. I have a reputation as a hotshot Hispanic writer, and that's what we're challenging Sports <laughs> Illustrated with, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. Though, and you were a hotshot sports writer, but it started with something no more complicated than I said, will somebody get me a list of every one of the Hispanic sports writers who has a regular column in one of the top 50 or 100 newspapers in the country. You know how long that list was. It was just me, right? Just you. It was one person. So I said, oh, we got to go hire this guy. So somebody, I tended to read a lot of newspapers. So when I traveled 
and read the Miami Herald, I'd read uh, many things you'd written, and they were great. But I uh, had other people, including our mutual friend Gary Honig, who said, yeah, this guy is a great writer, different point of view. He's down in Miami. He's important. He speaks. I think he can speak to Hispanic sports fans and become a national figure. And we, I came down here and discovered that you were very, very loyal to Miami, very, very loyal to the Miami citizens and your followers and fans here. And you said, no, I won't leave. If you remember, that was the long courtship of you won't leave. By the way, we also did. You don't get many no's, right? In the position that you were in, it, well, there, you weren't getting a whole lot of no. I, I didn't get a lot of no's from local journalists at newspapers who didn't want to make the move to something national and national television. So no, coming from from you ESP, had to find that weird. No, no, no. I found it admirable. That's one of the reasons I liked you immediately. Now, while I want to mention that we also did a list of every black sports writer in the country as well. And Jamel, that list... Jamel Hill would have been the only woman. Jamel was the only black woman with a column. And there were very few black young voices, right? Bamani Jones almost, would have been one of them. Almost none. There was a woman named Johnette Howard. I can't remember... Newsday, I think. She worked well, at... Well, at one point she worked for... the. She, she may have worked for Newsday. She did work, I believe, for Sports Illustrated at one point, And I think for the New York Times well, the, at one The point. reason I bring it up is for some... Along that path somewhere, you decided. And this happened very obviously in front of everyone at ESPN. I was doing John Skipper's work at ESPN, bringing in Katie Nolan, Sarah Spain, Mina Kimes, with the help of Mike Ryan, a very sharp eye and talent curator. We brought in women because it was important to you to shake the antiseptic whiteness of of ESPN. You brought me in. You brought me in as one of many fire starters because you were trying to change a culture a little bit there. Well, I was appalled when I got those lists and realized that there were no people of color or women who were, had platforms in sports. So we did it at the magazine. It worked. We then did it at ESPN.com. I'm very proud of the fact that we brought Ralph Wiley, wrote his last columns. Hunter S. Thompson Hunter, was someone yep. you hired, a journalism yeah. legend. We hired lots of smart and good writers. Rick That's Riley. Where, Rick Riley. We originally brought Bill Simmons in. After we did that at the magazine, then the internet when in 2005 I became uh, the chief creative officer basically of ESPN I thought well we got to do that here as well I'm looking at who's on television and it is overwhelmingly white men and now by the way I'm not a self-hater I'm not suggesting there's anything negative about any of those people there was something wrong about the practice that there was not a an aggressive, asserted effort that we're going to bring in and change the complexion of this place, literally. My boss at the time, George Bodenheimer, was committed to it, and I put that into practice to him. for him. I'd previously done it at the magazine and dot-com, and then we started at television. And, yeah, we had the same thing. We looked on television. We didn't have a single lead who was Hispanic. So with my friend who'd written some spectacular articles for the magazine. I remember the interview with Vladimir Guerrero. I learned there, by the way, why this matters. Vladimir Guerrero, if you remember, had a very difficult reputation. Yes, well, drink, this was a guy, this is one of my prouder pieces, actually. In back a million years ago, it seems like, when we were writing the really good stuff, the hard stuff, and I would hope, right, 
because John is a literary man, I would hope that I could get back to doing that kind of work through this company that I will give some people some information on and you will give them some information on over the course of this conversation. But John and I are getting into business together here spiritually because he believes fundamentally in good writing, really, because that's where it starts. You are a well-read man and you love the printed uh, word. Printed well, the good word. news is reading is a recreational pursuit you can carry through out your whole life. And it's appropriate behavior. So, yes, that's right now where I get most of my, a lot of my jollies is is reading. And look, there's a, there's no better way. Uh, well, there are, the, one of the best ways to tell a story is to write a 6,000 word piece on it, right? It gives you the length you need to actually uncover something, to actually get to complexity. Now, you can make a great documentary out of that. You can make a great feature unscripted series out of that. But gosh, I think that one of the great storytelling talents in the world is writing that feature. You did it on Vladimir Guerrero. The thing I learned, though, I want to give you, it's a simple lesson, but it was profound at the time, was Vladimir Guerrero wasn't particularly shy. He wasn't withdrawn. He did not speak English very well. And a bunch of guys sitting around when he was sitting on a stool with nothing but a towel, shooting off questions in English, he had trouble comprehending it. He wasn't comfortable answering. And he was uneducated, drinking from puddles, fifth grade education, overwhelmed by everything in America because he came from abject poverty. But you learn that story because you could speak Spanish to him and he could communicate to you. Right. Trust, he was an unknown. You. He was an unknown national superstar, at least in part or no, mostly because he didn't speak English. Yeah. So I learned at that moment that, gee, having someone who could speak Spanish and do that value. story. Yeah. And by the way, whose heritage with parents who came from Cuba, Vladimir also had was first generation into the United States. So you could make a connection. You could tell that story. It was profound. And, and that changed the trajectory of who Vladimir Guerrero was publicly, helped put the magazine on the map. And it was fantastic. I was and also mentioned the Ricky Williams story, which remains one of my favorite covers of ESPN. Ricky in a bridal outfit with Mike Ditka, who had basically provided him a dowry of every draft pick that the New Orleans Saints, I think, I think the Saints have a pick next year, but I think Ditka traded every pick from 1999. I have my regrets about getting Ricky Williams into that wedding dress for you guys because both he and I were a little naive. Because I, I want to tell some of these stories because John Skipper one time flew into New Orleans at the height of Ricky Williams' mania and and tried to sign a book deal and would have had the book deal. I would have written Ricky's book, and that kind of blew up for a number of different reasons. Maybe we can revisit that at some point. But I want to get into some of the stories involving uh -huh. your career because you've been around some really interesting things. You helped build. I mean, I wonder how you felt when you saw, you were trying to put at 6 o'clock, Jamel Hill and Michael Smith, you were trying to reinvent the beloved sacred cathedral of Sports Center. I'm going to put two young black voices here and I'm going to give them power and I'm going to give them the most sacred spot at ESPN, our news spot. And the whole thing blew up in your face. And then you've seen and everyone's seen what's happened at ESPN since to us, to Jamel, where your work blew apart. The, what you were trying to do blew apart. Then Trump America happens and everything explodes in everybody's face. We had some unfortunate things that happened around there. I mean, I had to take my fair 
share of blame for that show not working, right? I, I understood, I think in my mind, what that show should be, and it was a little bit of, yeah, we should bring in part of his and her. We should bring in and have more freedom to have a show. It was 6 o'clock, so games hadn't happened yet, right? The theory was we don't need to show highlights. We don't need to do reporting at the 6 o'clock the same way we had done before. We could do preview. I liked what Michael and Jamel had done on his and her, and I thought we can figure out some way to have kind of a combination. There was resistance to it in Bristol. I was in a very, very big job and didn't have time to pay attention day to day. I couldn't micromanage the show, and we didn't get what I really wanted, there. and I'm sorry it didn't work. I still am a great admirer of uh, Jamel and Michael and what they did for ESPN and what they could have done there. Uh, but it didn't happen, and sometimes things work, and sometimes they don't. John, you made billions and billions of dollars for Disney at ESPN. I'm curious, because I think you've heard me say this. If you haven't, I've said it publicly. I thought your greatest failure at ESPN for all the good work you did is that you couldn't pour enough of that money back into content to make the content even better Mm -hmm. than it was, even though you were pushing the boundaries of what SportsCenter did, right? Because you you did change it from, hey, it's not going to just be sports and highlights, but you had the spirit of page two in your heart. You had the Hunter S. Thompson, the Ralph Wiley. And I wanted to see some of that birth, like uh, great content across a network where at one point they actually brought in Rush Limbaugh in terms of foretelling what happened with the times, John, because (laughs) I believe I believe that you'd be fascinating on the subject of ESPN was not a political company. All you did was put minorities on the air. And the moment you did that, it became a political company because you were giving minorities voices. It's literally what we've seen happen in America over the last four years. You were at the center of it 10 years earlier. Yeah, And look, I've never understood why people can't decouple the idea that diversity and tolerance and accepting people for who they are is political. I don't think that's political. I think that's human values. I mean, why wouldn't you want to populate your own air talent with people from all different kinds of experiences? Why would you not want people who were gay to be comfortable letting people know that? Why wouldn't you tell the rest of your employees, no, you may not say something homophobic on the air. That's not political. That's respect for people and who they are putting diversity on the air One, it's smart business, and two, it is trying to make some progress so that we don't have to have people marching in the street because they are not treated in an equal manner by the people who are hired to protect us, right? By the way, I'm a great supporter of police who believe their job is to serve and to protect. Somebody said something so very smart to me the other day, which is we should quit calling them the police force, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Emphasis it, on police instead of the force. Yeah. I mean, it, it would change how people think about them. I mean, we all want somebody to call to help us if something's happened. Now more uh, than ever. Now more than ever. So I don't think anybody wants to suggest that we don't need that. I don't think about I think what people but, want to suggest is everyone needs to get treated by our criminal justice system and by the authorities who 
enforce things they need to enforce in a way that is just and fair and decent and human right it's not it's it's not political it's that is no but it's become that and we'll get into this in a second but when a black man is choked to death in the street eight and a half minutes to lead the protests of everything you've seen happen in america over the last 12 months and we're met at this moment john Uh with freedom being attacked in the capital in a way that we've been talking about here on the radio show if those were Black Lives Matter people encroaching on that particular symbol, uh, those bodies would have cascaded down the steps and been piled up like logs, like fire logs, because of the differences in race relations in this country that are so problematic now. You tried to do work that was not political. It was racial, and it became political. And now those things are so intertwined that it's impossible to take them apart. Well, you saw it's not unlike a lot of the national media trying to struggle with how do you deal with the Trump administration? And you have large numbers of people who believe that if you suggest that the president's not telling the truth, that you're doing something political. There's nothing political about that. This is where I want to get into the idea of freedom with you, because I want people to understand the nature of this venture that we're getting into, because You and I are kindred spirits. We both believe in content. I'm uh, the creative and you're the business shark. You're the assassin. But we think about the same things. We like the same things. You appreciate my creativity. I appreciate your creativity in sort of the art of the deal. But as it regards Cuba, and because I want to tell some of our personal linkage and story here, because I find it funny that my mother wouldn't return your calls. I find it funny that I was headed to Cuba with you and President Obama and baseball to normalize relations. I was bringing my father with me symbolically, the father you put on television. My father and I would have done anything for you at that point, and we were getting ready to go on a plane and basically cross an ocean for you because you had taken us to the American dream. You had the Disney funded American dream. And my mom said, nah, like I ain't going. Then she wouldn't return any of your calls. You were calling her. I'd love to know the politics behind all of that. I've never talked to you about any of this stuff. I don't know what you were thinking when you invited me. We weren't even really friends then. We were, you were El Jefe, but we didn't become friends until, I don't think we became friends until after you left ESPN. We certainly became different level of friends after that because of the support you gave me. So that made a difference. I also just had time, right? It is just hard to comprehend how big a job of trying to run ESPN was at the time. It's overwhelming. And so I always regretted that it it made it very difficult to have time for deep personal relationships because I would see you, I'd I'd get down here. My mom noticed that you were lonely. She thought you were a lonely man. And it was an observation I couldn't fathom. Because you were always surrounded by people. Everybody wanted to get near the power. And you were with a lot of people. But you know from how often I got to come down here. It wasn't that often. And I love being down here. By the way, I want to give a little shout out to Senora Labatard Because uh, she is a force. And I love her. And she's been always been very nice to me. And I understand her objections. It's uh, I wanted to take you and your dad and your mom, of course, back to Cuba not to make a political statement. It was to tell a story. What I wanted to do was to take one of our best storytellers, you, and with your parents, bring you back and have an experience. And you could tell that experience. Your mom and dad could see where they were before. 
That can be very hard. Well, I would have loved. No, see, that's the thing, though. For me, it would have been an emotional journey. See, this is what I want the people to understand about what the business is we're getting into together. Right. Because John has an eye for storytelling. So do I. It drew him to me. It drew me to him. It. Uh, are you ready to announce the name of the company? What kind of announcements do you want to make in this setting? Because I want people to understand that this is very much a family link. Because in the storytelling process, Mike, you'll love this. He took me over there to tell one kind of story. Instead, what I ended up doing is ripping him on his own air for making that relationship with Cuba, and he let me do that too. How cool was that? Like, instead, not only was I about to get on the plane and be his propaganda tool on behalf of Americana and Disney, I was about to do it with my father's accent at my side, and for all the noble reasons he's talking about, but also as a propaganda tool. Instead, I stayed behind because of my mother and ripped him. It's okay. Uh you have to have a certain uh, strong skin, uh, and occasionally if you hire talented people who are provocative and have strong opinions, you're going to get uh, get ripped. And it was one of the hard things to navigate at ESPN, was trying to navigate your personal relationships with the companies, the Walt Disney Company. Look, I don't have any interest in ripping the Walt Disney Company or ESPN. I had It changed my life. I've got no complaints. You said before, we got to spend a lot of money and do a lot of fun things at ESPN. The real issue was not money at that point. It was time. How much could you do? I mean, look, we we got to launch E60 and do enterprise stories. The company funded unbelievable research into things that were difficult with some of our partners. You know, the concussion situation in the NFL. ESPN did as good a reporting as anybody. In fact, only matched by the New York Times, some of the work they did. Uh, but then you had to pull out because of the partnership, no? You had to pull out on the difficult reporting because ultimately you've got the conflict of interest of being in bed with your partner while also trying to do journalism because you've got a journalism sensibility, but there is no J in E, S, P, or N. Well, there were, look, there was journalism before I got there, right? I mean, it's, and John Walsh, again, was a guy responsible for a lot of that. We, and John was my partner in this, at the magazine, we did very good enterprise journalism at ESPN.com. We committed ESPN.com to doing that. When I got into the role where I could influence television, they were doing a lot of journalism. Bob Lee had been there a long time, smart reporters, but we were allowed to build a much larger journalism organization. We launched a new weekly show, E60, took SportsCenter from three or four hours a day to 16 to 18 hours a day. We put more resources into outside the lines in all of our places. You know, we did enterprise journalism that ended up on college game day. We did enterprise journalism that ended up on lots of shows and places and got to hire a lot of smart writers and people. So Solely got, because it's important to you, important no, to no, John no. Walsh, important to who? Who was it well, important to be doing journalism for? Who were the embodiment of what original Sports Center was? Like I'm, I'm asking honestly. I don't know who decided at ESPN. Was it outside the lines? Who decided at ESPN we're going to also be a journalism company? Well, there's a little line of people who did. Steve Bornstein believed in it. He's the one who hired John Walsh. John Walsh came in with a newspaper background and made it a more journalistic company. Outside the line started before I got there, so I'm not quite sure. Bob Lee was uh, influential in that. I don't know who else. Dick Schapp, probably, Dick somewhere. Schapp, Dick somewhere Schapp. in there. Jeremy preceded me there. And by the way, it was important to the company because it established ESPN as not only 
the sort of wacky sports center and the funny names and the great highlights established them as not only the place to see the other games that you'd never seen in the men's basketball tournament, all the other college games you'd never seen, all the NBA games. I mean, ESPN just was responsible for the proliferation of fans getting to watch so many more games. But games happen mostly at prime time during the week, afternoons and evenings of Saturday and Sunday. So they got a lot of other time to fill. So they filled it with news, highlights, information, and then made the company more credible, more reputable. And we strongly believed when I was there that we had an obligation. We were a big, big institute. Somebody has to hold truth to power and has to hold people who don't do the right thing accountable. And at ESPN, we believed that we were the only place in sports where we had the resources and could afford to do that, had the airtime, had the radio shows and the television shows. Why wouldn't you do it? Well, the answer is not to why you wouldn't do it, but why it creates conflicts is yes. When you suddenly start doing a lot of enterprise journalism and you start reporting on concussions in American tackle football, people don't want to hear that. It's hard, and I understand it. But that's where the conflict arises. The conflict is right there. You have to go as the most powerful executive in sports to football, which you're beholden to and you are a partner of, and say, look, there's this dirty truth here that is going to cost you guys millions in concussion settlement, and we've got to keep digging, keep digging, keep digging. That is where editorial meets publishing, and you have to have them be independent, and ESPN learns it the hard way. I'm smiling only because... I never had the courage to actually use the words you just used. I never went to them and said, we have to keep digging. I went and said, look, we're a news organization and we're a entertainment company and we're also a sports broadcaster. So we broadcast your games. We love your games. We do a lot of stories about things you do. We have profile players, but we also do news and covering the revelations that were coming out of medicine as to what's happening with um, CTE. CTE. We were reporting on them. People would say, but you're a partner. And I'm like, yes, we are a partner. We love you. We're going to promote the game. We're going to do everything we can. We're also going to report on it. And I had it set up that there was only one human being conflicted in the entire organization. That was me. So the news organization reported up into me and the programming rights organization reported up into me. And no one from either one of those organizations could influence the final decisions of the other part of the organization. And that's where you have to break journalistically, right? As the as the caretaker for the company, because you have a partner, that's where journalism, journalism dies at that doorstep. Yeah, well, we recruited, I'm not recruited, we set in place the rules of the road. So for partners, we wanted to be good partners. We said, we'll never surprise you. You always have a chance to comment. And if you want to dispute anything we put on the air, we will always provide space and time for that. And that worked beautifully. We didn't have that much conflict. The NFL was more than average prickly, but generally at the top of these organizations, people are sophisticated and they understood why we were doing what they were doing. We were doing. Oh, but they're also very rich and very powerful. I don't know how much use Jerry Jones has for your journalism. Well, interestingly enough, I've never had anything but excellent experiences with Mr. Jones. And uh, You understand what I'm saying, though. Bob Kraft, I don't even know how we're supposed to navigate all that stuff as a journalistic entity when 
there's a happy ending situation in a Boca Raton tanning salon. But let's let's get back into the the core of this business, unless you have something else that you wanted to say on this front, because you're a storyteller and we've got a good story to tell, uh, uh-huh. both your and my partnership, emotional, personal, mm-hmm. and just the company that we're building and what you want it to be. So what do you want people to know about what it is that we're doing together? What we're going to do is create a company that's going to take great stories and make content out of those stories. Now that can be on Levitard and friends. You're telling stories, right? You're having fun telling stories. It could be in a documentary. It could be in a a scripted series. It could be in short form feature, seven minute, you know, profiles of players, but we want to tell stories. We want to have associations, relationships, sometimes as employer with great talented storytellers and help them tell those stories across all platforms and mediums and genres. And that's what we're up to. The name of the company is Meadowlark. The Meadowlark is the songbird of the new dawn. And I figure here sort of post-Trump, post-COVID, a songbird of the new dawn might be welcome. It heralds in new beginnings and new things. Very arty of you. It's why you insisted Bill Simmons name it Grantland because you want to go all highfalutin with your intellectualism. <laughs> yes, the metal lark, not terribly Hispanic, not terribly Levitard and friends, but the metal lark is the the song and the storyteller, a new dawn. So yes, you went very arty there because you're the CEO of this company. And I'm just your ally evermore till the very end. I, I, I like literary illusions and I like names with some underlying meanings. And I must say, I've named a bunch of things. And um, I've always been slightly amused by the exercising of, of hiring a company to figure out how you hire a name. And usually at some, some point I just go, you know what, I've thought about it. Here's the name. That, by the way, that's how ESPN Plus got the name. We did a lot of research and <laughs> thought about a lot of things. <laughs> well, you've got, you're and responsible what, for the ESPN phone, too. I want to get into and, your greatest and, yeah. ESPN failures. Yeah. I want to get into what you regard. I, what do you regard as your greatest? And I want Mike to come in here and say something to you about diversity because I think you need to hear it because our crew that you're now protecting because you're the godfather of this crew, you guys – The audience knows we are a family, and you're coming in here now. Great White Shark is coming in here business to negotiate our futures. This audience loves our show, Uh our diversity, Uh the show that you empowered because you put all of us in this place, Uh even though you wanted to replace Stugatz with Bomani. We'll get to that in a second and shame you. (laughs) Uh, Mike, tell tell Skipper what it is. uh, We'll get back to the business in a second, but tell Skipper what it is you wanted to tell you wanted me to tell him that I didn't catch because I was writing something down. Well, I myself have benefited from ESPN's overall vision mm-hmm. to diversify because people that we brought into our universe have opened my eyes to blind spots I didn't know I had. I imagine when you invited Dan to Cuba, you knew that it would be complicated, but you were going for something. And then when Dan turns that opportunity into a platform to open people's eyes as to why he can't go, you yourself are benefiting from your own vision right. because you probably aren't even aware of that perspective or not for forcing the issue when it came to diverse voices. Right. Well, you had to be prepared for a certain amount of Michigas if you unleash smart, diverse people because they will know things that you don't know. I just read this very good book called Heavy by a guy named Casey Layman, and I hope I've pronounced his first name right. I believe it means joy. And uh, he writes about a world that I couldn't possibly understand. 
in a lot of ways. You understand it better after you read about it, but you can't feel it in your bones. I did understand from years of following elections and coming to Miami how the Cuban community, particularly of a certain age, you know, the people who came in 1959 and 60 and left a spectacular place, right? Beautiful. This city you love. Yeah, I love Havana. I've been several times. I love Havana, and I can see, you see there the mansions, and they've now been divided into... It's part of why you love Miami, too. These yeah. these flavors are foreign to you, yeah, yeah, as fun. you are super Caucasian. Yeah, one of the first things uh, you did for me is take me down to Little Havana, and we went into some place and had some Cuban coffee, and, and it was fun. I personally find being in environments that are different, alien, I find it great fun. I loved going to Brazil for the World Cup, and we went into neighborhoods. I went with my friend Wright Thompson into neighborhoods where we were the only non-Brazilians, and people said, be very careful. You, you know, you do have to be careful, but most of the world is more afraid than they need to be of experiencing other people's lives that are different. So we went into, I went in with, I became friends with Hugh Masekela and he took me into the, um, I'm now forgetting the favelas. favelas. No, favelas, Brazil. In South Africa, they are something akin to villages, but he took us into a very difficult section because we were with Hugh Masekela, we could go in they had bad security go in before and talk to the people in the neighborhood to uh, let them know we were coming. And it was great. I think generally most people, most places are well-intentioned. You have to be a little bit careful, but if you're afraid to get out of your comfort zone and get another environment, I've always liked doing that. But how does that shape what we're doing together? Because I want the audience, this is a very intimate space they're I, in, I, John, because I, our story is intertwined with all of this stuff. Okay. And the company we're building now is going to have, beyond Levitard and Friends, which is just a hood ornament on this, it's just first, right? <laughs> Levitard and well, Friends. It's not is just first. It's a particularly spectacular first. It's a great way to start a company. And it's a great pleasure for me as your friend, becoming a friend to Mr. Ryan and Mr. Stugatz. Uh, Mr. Stugatz. Mr. Stugatz. You tried uh, to change his name, too? You, you had to try I and did. change his name? I did once tell him that uh, a guy with the last name of Wiener shouldn't have a nickname that was nuts. It's just like, uh, I said, you could have, I think you ought to rethink that. How did we win that one? How did we win Stugatz getting to keep uh, his name at Disney when it means cocky and ballsy? Because it was right. I was wrong. That That is not among my greatest mistakes. But I did sit with Stugatz one time in my office, and he, he was lovely and looked at me with incomprehension. Because what I didn't understand is it's now part of his identity. It is what he is. He's integral to the show. I did not have an understanding of that either. Well, you wanted Bomani to replace him. I remember it was an assassin call you made. I remember where I was. It was in an alley, and, and it was like 15 seconds. Dan, it was super charming and a lot of accent, and you and I didn't talk very much. So you get, getting a call from El Jefe mattered. And it's like, are you sure? Are you sure that you won't uh, replace Stugatz with Bomani Jones? And I'm like, I can't, John. This guy's family. Like, we built this thing uh, together. And now you're entrusted with it. It's, yeah, a, good, no, no, it, it's and, a good thing. And, it's a good and, thing we didn't fire and, Stugatz. And Stugatz and I have made peace over this. And oh, now, you're going to have to fire him uh, again, John. You're going to you're gonna have to fire him again. And he's think, gonna, Mike, he's going to do something wrong, I, right? We have to warn the CEO of the company 
what he's getting into bed with. Mr. Skipper, he's already done plenty wrong. Okay. But uh, the name was not part of it. Apparently, the, the name is endearing and uh, and makes it work. I did understand. I was going to go back and say I did understand how Cuban immigrants of that generation, how they felt about that. Oh, yes. I, mean, I wasn't, but, I wasn't but, calling that into question. But, but you do feel it in your bones when a dear friend's mother says, no, they're not going. Oh, so you do understand it at a different level. Absolutely. I didn't think we were dear friends back then. I didn't think we well, were yet dear friends. I we, was very grateful for everything you had done once for Once you're but, dear friends, you can, you can basically take that designation back into the past. You may not have been good friends. Well, I want to cover, and I don't know how uncomfortable uh, uh, this is going to be for you, because I know the journalist in me and the interviewer in me is going to have to ask you some of these questions about the exit at ESPN. And so I don't know how to cover this ground with you, but I just would mark that as the point. You and I weren't really friends before that. I was caught off guard by everything that happened there. I broke down on air because I felt so indebted to all the things that you built for us. And then, you know, the details come out and whatever the details are end up being a mess for you. And then we became friends. Then, then I was not your friend until I landed in Winston-Salem. I was not your, I was not really your friend over Christmas holidays because you need, because you needed a friend. I did need a friend and you did come down uh, and spent the weekend with me. And I've been ever grateful for that. So maybe that allows me to prefer to you even in days before you were as a friend, as a, a great friend. It's semantic. You're right. I was fond of you. I appreciate what you had done for the company. And you're now back to what is a little bit of a regret of mine at ESPN is that I was not able, you were in a whirlwind and trying in a whirlwind to be friends. You, you know, when you meet people that you are simpatico with, right? You know, and you know which people you immediately meet and you want to go out and and uh, go to Little Havana and have some fun and do some things. I just didn't have the time to do it. Well, there, were, all, there were only three people, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't mean to, the inner workings of friendship, but it was me, Simmons, and Wright Thompson were the only three guys that you were actually hanging out with that way, right? Where it's just, you just want to go and be normal for a night. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm certain there were uh, there are other people I feel quite comfortable with and was very fond of and did hang out and do things. I just never had time. There was a specific, very personal relationship with Bill. I mean, Bill was very important to the company. Came in when he was just a kid. Well, you guys helped make Bill Simmons what he ended up well, becoming. Bill Simmons helped make ESPN.com. We hired Bill Simmons at a moment in time. It's hard to remember. Uh, 2000 is when I went to Seattle to stand in front of a group of people. I recently did the same thing here, but it was just like six people. There it was like 200 people. You went from the most powerful man in sports to talking to a Zoom call of Roy, Chris, and Stugatz. <laughs> I felt like you had fallen from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the barrel when you went from the most powerful man, because this whole thing exploded in your face by your own doing, right? Uh, you, you went from the most powerful man in sports to running zone and to now coming into our rescue because you believe and you value. Well, there's nothing to rescue. Well, the, is, business, the business part of this needs is, rescuing. Well, it doesn't need rescuing. It just needs the simple execution of exploitation. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find us a partner who values the show the way I do. And we are going to march into this with the belief that we're going to 
be somewhere where you have the freedom to be who you want to be. Now, again, ESPN changed my life, changed your life, changed Bill Simmons' life. There becomes a point in time where sometimes you need to do something different. I'm happy with the sequence of it's been fun to be at DAZN. I'm still associated with DAZN, and I've enjoyed doing that. That was a good landing spot for me. What I love doing most of all is storytelling. And as you pointed out in my dotage, I'd like to work with people who I'm fond of. I'd like to have a certain amount of freedom. If there's something I learned in the last four years, it is that if you're not brave enough to speak up about certain things, then you are complicit in those things. And I we're going to start a little company, but that little company is going to be proud of what we do. And if you want to talk about what's happening at the border of this country, that is a problem for you as an American. Well, you know how much I value freedom, right? That was no in any of our negotiations. And uh, Mike, I'm going to have to get back to the journalism this and the grief eating in this because I'm going to have to talk around the exit at ESPN. People will think that our friendship was because of anything that had to do at ESPN. I was indebted to you. We were not that mm-hmm. close. You were somebody who was at the top of sports. I wasn't making asks of you. We weren't talking uh-huh. all the time. We did not become friends until after your exit mm-hmm. at ESPN. And I just wanted to know so the audience could see clearly uh, where it is that we became friends so that they can understand the nature of what this partnership is and what this story is. Mm-hmm. Well, leaving ESPN was a difficult proposition. Um, I had some personal behavior that was inappropriate, which I believe I took responsibility for and resigned. I then wanted to be very clear because it was during a moment of sort of me too, that it had nothing to do with workplace. It had nothing to do with inappropriate behavior at the workplace or sexual harassment because that was antithetical to the way I ran the place. And anybody who knows, knows nothing got into the workplace. They know that I treated women with respect, brought women into the company in unprecedented numbers, moved them up the executive ranks in unprecedented numbers. So that mattered to me. But uh, it did create some hard nights of the soul, right? It's fun to be the president of ESPN. I got to do a lot of things. Everybody returned my phone calls. I got to walk on the field at football games and go to the I World I mean, you Cup. were the most powerful man in sports. It was fun. You felt it, correct? And, you were the most yeah. powerful man in sports. And so, not remarkable to say that some of the most difficult days of my life were in the immediate aftermath of that. And uh, I had many supporters and friends, but I only had one person who said, I'm going to come down because I was in North Carolina, which is where I'm from, and we had a house there. And so I went down to kind of get out of New York in the middle of the media and the press and get a little quiet. And one person said, I don't think you asked me. I think you said, I'm going to come down this weekend and see you. I don't remember how it happened, but there you were suddenly. And you and I had a pretty lovely weekend. I was by myself, so having somebody come down who I could unload some stuff on. You were anxious for me to reveal more of myself to you, right? One thing I have always been, I'm very socially lubricious 
in meeting people. I like people. I, but I, camouflaged. But, camouflaged. But I don't. Charming executive. I don't tend to reveal much. And as uh, a Southerner, I also tend to believe that expressions of emotion should be bottled up. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of a sort of Southern macho culture I grew up in. So I didn't express myself. I didn't cry. And so you came and we had a, we, we had a lovely few days. I got to relax. We had some, you know, we did some eating at the place. We did have some adult beverages. I think that bothered some people too. I, I've never been more than a social drinker. So it wasn't a problem, but somebody made it a problem. I've always resented the intrusion I used to tell people that the president of ESPN was the greatest public position you could be in. There was nothing you couldn't do. You had access to everything, and nobody really knew who you were. I didn't get recognized. So when Dan said to me, are you worried? I'm like, no, nobody knows who I am. Uh, It was a little naive, but uh, nobody didn't know who I was. People knew who you were, so I assumed they knew who you were. They took a picture. They didn't know who I was, and we'd go home, and all would be... I don't think I've ever been so heartbroken, honest to God, in terms of between what the intention was versus how it is that it was framed, but yeah. Well, but get over that because it was profoundly... It was profound. We're sitting here. We're starting a business together. Clearly, your coming to Winston-Salem was a start of something, a deep friendship, uh, mutual admiration that is leading to our being in business and going off on a, an adventure together. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And I, I would, there's no place I'd rather be right now. So I, my sense is you can never worry about what happened in the past. If you end up getting to a place where you're very happy about what's going on in your life, you, you would change it. You know, it's a, this, that crazy old butterfly effect, right? If I went back and changed what had happened so that it was, Maybe we're not here. Maybe maybe we're not here. So you can't worry about it. Well, let me ask you a couple of the questions about your ESPN past. How difficult was it for you to basically cut Bill Simmons' head off in the street as someone (laughs) who helped nurture him? You basically gave him all the same powers you gave me. And this has resulted here in this partnership. And I know you and Bill have repaired everything there, but I don't know what happened at the end with you and Bill. Yeah, we have repaired it. I'm very fond of Bill. Bill was unbelievably important, including in my career. Well, you know, I rose because of what you did at the magazine and other people, what Bill and other people did at .com. That put me in position to rise in the company, so I'm eternally grateful. Uh, Look, the fact of the matter was Bill Simmons at that point in time ended up making a good decision, which was to go out on his own. He was ready for that. He was chafing at some of the same things you chafed at, which was inability to uh, freely express himself. And uh, we did have certain rules that we won't necessarily have here that he violated. And so he and I ended up on the wrong side of each other for a short period of time. But look, it worked out for Bill. Congratulations to him. He created something pretty spectacular at the ringer, just did very well for himself. I'm very proud of him. I, that sounds a tiny bit well, but paternal. You're, but you're going to be, yeah, I am well, I pr- admire pr- Bill pr- a great deal because he built that thing. I can't build that thing without someone like yours help. I can't well, do, look, I don't have the business acumen. He's always been super sharp, super ambitious. Uh, he tapped into the Boston sports writing model. What he was doing at page two was pioneering. You guys, but, you guys were helping him become a star the same way you helped me become well, a Bill, star. Bill, um, Bill gets, 
his due for he's very deserving of having a huge audience for his podcast. He's very good at it. He does not get his due for how he changed sports writing. You'll remember the rules. You as a reporter for the Miami Herald would go into the press room and in the press room, you couldn't wear a Boston Red Sox hat. You couldn't cheer for your team. You were there and you had to be quiet. You had to pretend not to have a team. We had a kerfluffle at ESPN when I got in charge of, Content, great, great word. Because people weren't supposed to wear anything. Stuart Scott couldn't say that he was a Tar Heel fan, right? Because you would be on the wrong side. Bill blew down the wall that said a reporter couldn't involve himself in the story. That's just new journalism, right? That's what Tom Wolf and Hunter Thompson and a bunch of other people created. But Bill brought that to sports. He blew down the wall between a journalist and his fandom and wrote, he brought culture into sports. Pop culture. I mean, the, the quotes thing he, he did, spectacular. The ranking of the greatest basketball players of all time. He doesn't get his due for the level of inventiveness and how he changed what sports writers can do. And writing funny is the hardest kind of writing. Oh my it's God. the hardest. I, I never knew how to do it. I can, I can be funny here. Writing funny is the hardest. Writing funny is very hard. Rick Riley was very good at it. Uh, for years in the back of uh, Sports Illustrated. There's a few people. Roy Blunt is funny about sports a little bit. Dan Jenkins. Dan Jenkins uh, is funny about sports. Rick Riley was probably the best at it. He was the best at it for in the short in the column. I mean, right? He wrote a funny, funny column. And by the way, he wrote funny books. But Bill Simmons is dead funny. He is unbelievable. I used to laugh out loud when it would be, here's the 25 Godfather quotes that sum up the NBA season so far. It's spectacularly inventive, and uh, and Bill has become a quite sophisticated leader, right? I mean, he knows how to put talented people together to make a company and sold a company. So it turned out to be the right move. But for what him happened? To make. But what happened between you and him? Is that something that we can explore? <laughs> no, no, I just got mad one morning. I got mad. Bill knows this. I got mad one morning because uh, he had. Uh, Gone off again, I believe, on the commissioner of the National Football League. On Dan Patrick's show. And uh, I'm just like, this is not going to work out. And I got to confess, Bill knows this. I'm like, I'm going to control the narrative on this one. Bill's not. And do I regret it? I don't think so. It's back to the same point as before. I don't think Bill regrets it. Bill actually ended up well, that's the funny being thing. the better no, for but it, that's as w- did I. What's funny about some of this, John, is... I mean, it's crazy to me as a story because as the person who brought journalism or helped reinforce the sturdiness uh, of journalism at ESPN, you didn't bring it to ESPN, no. but you reinforced it. You brought in newspapers, the argument shows, the credibility of journalism, and you tried to shake and rattle the cages inside of the corporate machine, and you birthed, while, you know, I, I believe The Ringer wrote something about this the other day, there was a... You birthed this generation of television where sports writers and journalists were going to lend their credibility to ESPN and kill the sports section while doing so because it was for sale. You bought all of the credibility to journalism, and then what ends up happening is that era ends, your era ends, my era ends, but the result is that the people you empowered, Bill Simmons, Jamel Hill, and me, are all people who now go into the new frontier 
as the journalists who were quote unquote too hot for ESPN or too dangerous. And it ends up being a good career move somehow for all of us. Um, I think it's going to be a fine career move. And I think that ESPN is going to be fine as well. And look, I do have to, I mentioned John Walsh. There was a guy named Vince Doria who had come from newspapers who brought a lot of that in there. Eric Rideholm. Sports editors, but you yeah. hired a bunch of sports yeah, editors, yeah. newspaper sports editors. But John editors. had hired Vince. John had brought Vince in. Eric Rideholm, who produced Highly Questionable, did a fabulous job, also brought. And, and Mark Shapiro, who preceded me as a head of content, is really responsible for Around the Horn. Right, which brought the journalists. And, but he was responsible for the Sports Century series, yep. for realizing that newspaper guys could be on camera for free yep. and tell you a whole history of story that takes us to this company we're starting, whereas right. we want well, storytellers. Mark, Mark was a student of the history of sports and was a, a reader and uh, came out of, uh, I'm not quite sure what he studied at the University of Iowa, but a great place for writers at Iowa. So Mark read, and he understood what sports writers could do, and he got started on that. So again, everything I did at ESPN was part of a continuum. I ended up emphasizing certain things and, and doing more of them and certain less of certain things. And yeah, you bring, it started when ESPN magazine was simply a combination of Rolling Stone and Sports Illustrated, right? That's in, in every aesthetic. You even made it super large for that reason. Yeah. Well, I, I, that was partly also business because Rolling Stone magazine is printed every other week, so I knew I could go into the printing press and print the other week, which is what we did. But I want people to understand the roots of that. You brought Rolling Stone, you brought the fight to sports journalism with ESPN, and by emboldening the journalism prospects of ESPN, cool. you took the fight in magazine form, the, the form that you most respected at the time, right. the printed word, to fight with the behemoth. Sports Illustrated was the standard. ESPN, you decided, no, I want to be the standard. Well, and remember also, Rolling Stone was a music magazine. Not really. Rolling Stone was a magazine that has its core music. ESPN at its core had sports, but we let the journalists at ESPN do the same thing that they'd done at Rolling Stone, right? They moved a field into some culture, and they did enterprise, and they cared about stories. So did Sports Illustrated, by the way. Sports Illustrated did lots of journalism and did spectacular investigative stories, but we brought a little more coolness, a little more swagger to the magazine. The bigger size gave us more to do with um, photography. We could do more with photography and design. And the upfront section, remember the upfront section? I can't remember what it was called, but uh, Dave, yes. Eggers, yes. Dave Eggers was there, and a guy named Zev Barra. And Neil Fine and Gary Bell, writing intellectuals, Sue, New York, New York, write, New York writing elite. Yeah, and uh, we had a great art director. Darren. Because you were trying to, you were trying to also do the Paris Review, kind of right. We it's were, not, yeah. you were ambitious, but, literary ambitious. But there. then remember, then we went and did the same thing with dot com. We brought in David Halberstam and Hunter Thompson, and Ralph Wiley, and and Bill Simmons. So we were looking for people to have sports, sort of a a base in sports and to move forward. Then we did the same thing on television. Now, as you know, television is hotter medium. I think Marshall McLuhan said that than print, right? You could get away with stuff in print. We could do something on page two because nobody read it. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people read it, but nobody in a position of authority, you know, was reading all the journalism we were doing at the magazine or at com. So then I came to television and television, of course, everybody sees it. It's different. 
So, you know, it, it's on television. It's just hotter. And we'd done the same thing, but as you hired people with opinions who weren't, strictly speaking, guys who grew up, men and women, who'd grown up really, really wanting to be a sideline reporter or to be, you know, an analyst on a show. These were people who had things to say. You and Dan and Bill Simmons and and Hunter uh, S. Thompson and Ralph Wiley and Jamel Hill had things to say, and they didn't want to be corralled into only saying them about whether or not, you know, LeBron James is, is better than Michael Jordan. You know, the sort of the endless, that we did a lot of that too. So I, I'm happy to take responsibility for that. But some people wanted to talk about things that were a little more profound. All right. Well, stay there for a second, okay? Because what I'm going to do here, you spoke of corralling and our friendship and this story isn't going to be contained to one part. I want to have everyone in our audience sort of absorb what this partnership is, and we're going to tell this story in a couple of different parts because he's had a fascinating career, and there are a lot of things. I want to ask you about the ESPN phone. I want to ask you about your biggest (laughs) failures. I want to ask you about some of the coolest things you got to do. I want to ask you about the high points and the low points because I think you're a fascinating interview subject. Mike, how many parts are we going to end up cutting this into to turn into uh, the free agent ride that we're going on with the audience? It's a pirate ship. We've got a new skipper. We've got a literal new skipper to the pirate ship. This is part of the announcement that explains to everybody what this partnership is, that he's the CEO of the company. He's our business assassin. He's the shark in charge of taking these creatives and doing something with them. And his first order of business is going to be, we were trying to just keep this thing until he got here. Keep it afloat, Mike. Until he got here and can clean up the business, because I'm not an entrepreneur. We want this to be transparent and obvious to the audience. We want it to be authentic. We want to take them on this ride, Rolling Stone style. How are we going to do this? We're going to release this in parts. This is part one. Part one of, you guys really want me to tell you how many parts this is going to be? Uh, <laughs> six sounds cool. Yeah, you're doing six. Okay, we will talk again. Wow. This is part one. I just don't want, because this is a sprawling story, and I don't want it to be contained because we've got a free audio space now, John. This is, you've just seen the whole world has changed in front of us. You just saw it. You just, you are in a big job at the zone, John. Uh-huh. You saw something here that represents value. You saw as a revolutionary, as a pioneer, as a visionary, as a business assassin, you've seen a space here where we occupy value. And this is a big job for you to have. I mean, Mike, I couldn't be more grateful that this guy, I can't believe he's available to us in any way. He had the biggest job in sports. This ain't it. A Zoom call with Roy and Chris is not it. Totally massive job. You're just talking about the five more episodes he owes us, right? Yes, five more, John. Five more soul probing. I can't, I don't want people to take things out of context or say, he didn't ask any difficult questions. I want to make it such a sprawling thing that it teases. I'm going to ask the most difficult questions in episode six. Well, that's the only way. Without that, you'll be down to nine people listening. This better not be one story. No, listen, because people are going to try and co-op this. Lebitard didn't ask him anything difficult. You will get that in episode 470. We're in a boat in the Caribbean, and we're just having a party because we've stolen everybody's money. This is the company now. It's just us talking. <laughs> wow. to the skipper. I thought it was the biggest job in sports. The, Who told me? You told Stugatz, me this. Stugatz you told, told me. You. Stugatz Stugatz told me told you. This was the biggest job in sports. 
I need to go talk to him. The pirate ship has a new skipper. We're going to keep Ahoy. telling this story. We're going to keep telling it because it's a good, fun story. All right, Dan. It was fun. Thank you. 